I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where religious nuttery meets Christian fruits face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Did you notice those first two graphics? Very interesting because what they are, they're from the Mormonism uh, Encyclopedia of Mormonism and from the LDS Church website. And what they do is they explain the LDS view of end times, of when Jesus is returning. If you get a chance to uh, read those closely, you'll notice that one, uh, to the Mormons, uh, Jesus' return is um, really a physical uh, deal. It's built on the physical church. It's an Americanized view. It's a gathering. The New Jerusalem is going to be centered around Mormonism. And the reason I point this out is because in our dialogue with the LDS, it's going to be really important that we have our house in order with regard to end times and what the Bible actually says. And uh, I'm not saying that the views I share here have to be embraced totally, but I think they should be given some consideration because when we clearly see what the Bible says, we can then point out to the LDS, you have been off on this. Uh, Joseph was not completely, uh, or not even close to completely, but Joseph was not right about his estimation of the second coming. And because Mormonism was a millennialist church to begin with, they were preparing the kingdom of God for his second advent and that's, how, that's what gave it its initial fervor. Uh, I think the discussion on end, end times is important. So uh, the ministry is dedicated to getting people to really consider the word of God, to learn it, to hear it, to teach it. And with all we come in contact with, we know that the word does not return void. We know that the word, uh, the scripture describes it, us as having the washing of the word to the renewing of our minds. It's the word that will wash out the former stuff and bring in the new. And we know that we can come to know the true and living God, which is life eternal, by and through exposure to the word. Nothing on earth speaks to the spirit more clearly than the word delivered in conjunction with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we commissioned to have the word of God set to music and nearly 60 memorable verses delivered word for word in the universal language of song. Take a listen.
Not only uh, are In His Words CDs available through iTunes, they're also available through uh, our internet store, www.hotm.tv, which has been malfunctioning of late, but is now back up and running to perfection. So if you want to look into getting those. Finally, if you are poor uh, on a limited income, we want you to have the word of God set to music. Write us, email us, and uh, we'll send it to you free. We'll do that with any of the books, anything we have. If you can't afford it, just tell us. You want to lie to us in God's name and get a product? Go ahead. <laughs> That's up to you, but if you can't afford it, tell us. We'll send it to you free. Okay, and with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that your presence will be with us and that we will be able to detect your truths amidst all the talk and discussion that comes from man, me, callers, and uh, the things that get in the way of what you want us to know. We pray that you'll sweep it away and, and we'll be able to hear clearly what the truth is. Be with us now. We thank you for those who are seekers of truth and we pray that we will be able to benefit them in our quest. We, uh, we thank you for our volunteers and staff and everybody who's involved in the ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we ended with a passage spoken from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ that, in my opinion, ended, boom, ended the debate about what he was talking about in Matthew 24. Uh, Jesus had been describing to his apostles all sorts of signs and wonders and fears in very apocalyptic terms. And then he says in Matthew 24, 34, verily I say unto you, to my apostles, to you right here and now, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. We have proven to you through scripture what a generation means. We showed you quotes from uh, R.C. Sproul, C.S. Lewis last week relative to this. We have talked about uh, what this could only mean in scripture. This passage is incontrovertible. It, these words were spoken to the apostles at that time. They were not spoken to us now. How can I say this? Because Jesus said it. That's how I can say it. Get over it if it conflicts with what you want to think it says. It does not say anything but what it says. Then in the very next line, Jesus adds some more emphasis to what he said saying, verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So he says, look at, verily I tell you, all these things will happen within a generation that I have talked about here in Matthew 24, which is all the stuff futurists use to say, this is what the end of the world's gonna look like. He says, all of it's gonna happen. This generation will, not, uh, generation will not pass, and heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I want to talk about this passage and what the phrase heaven and earth will pass away means relative to the context of the Bible and what the last days, the last days means from a reasonable biblical point of view. If we hear anything repeated over and over again in churches today and going back 10, 20, 100, 200, 500 years, we hear that the world is at its last days. This comes from unbelievers too. I mean, you'll hear people who don't even believe in God saying, I think this is the end of the world. I think these are the last days. Add in the fact that we have such speed and clarity and vision of all the evil that's going on in the world by virtue of social media. I mean, we know when there's been a mass shooting in Korea within two minutes because of the internet. 
It seems like these proclamations that we are at the end of the world, that these are the last days, it seems like they ring true. So pandering to fears, believers sitting in the pews begin reading signs of the times and they begin filling their storehouses with grains and the imminent tribulation ahead. Pastors, I believe, keep their churches on high alert, preparing for this imminent end and have for the past, you know, long, long time. I received a text today from a person, former LDS. Um, he's very intelligent. I'm gonna call him um, Tunnel Vision. Tunnel Vision said, uh, and that's, this is kind of an oxymoron because he doesn't have Tunnel Vision. He wrote in this text, it may be easier for churches to get their people to do their works and to serve them if they can convince them that we have to prepare for the second coming because the idea that he has already come undermines their control in a sense, end quote. No doubt, no doubt that is true. Even if they mean it from the intentions of the, the best intentions of their heart, it no doubt keeps us on edge and it keeps us wanting to be ready for the imminent return so that we are taken and so that we do have something to look forward to. Is heaven and earth getting ready to pass away? Are we in the last days truly right now? If you think so, what do you use to support that position? Is it because your pastor keeps telling you this and people run around and say it's happening and uh, as they have for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? But more importantly, do you believe this because the Bible tells you so? Okay, and then really, I wanna ask you, really, the Bible tells you, the Bible tells you we are in the last days? I want you to think about that. I read the same Bible as you do. I'm in it just like you are. And how come I don't read it in the same way? Is it because I'm evil and you're good? Is it because I've fallen and I'm no longer subject to the spirit of, of God and, and Christ's shed blood no longer covers me because I don't see it the same way? How come I read the same Bible and yet I read it and I interpret it in a completely different light now than the way you do and as I used to. Perhaps the best way to end this debate is to, is to ask, when did the writers of the New Testament believe the last days were happening? That's how we will tell. It's not what you think, what I think, what pastors teach, what people think, whatever they say, it's what the Bible tells us that the apostles and Jesus thought the last days were. Okay, so in the New Testament, Jesus has come. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets and the Old Testament prophesied of him and his time, right? We know that. And the New Testament is a fulfillment of him doing all that was prophesied of him coming to do. In the Old Testament book of Joel, we have a prophecy that speaks of Christ. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit, end quote. Now the LDS take that and they say this was fulfilled when Joseph Smith restored the church to the earth.
He was a young man who, who uh, his father dreamed, dreamed, and he was a young man who saw visions. It was fulfilled then. Christians today often say, well, you know, this is, 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 is gonna happen at a later time. Jumping to the New Testament on the day of Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit fell on a bunch of Jews who had gathered there, uh, and, and it fell on them so strongly that the narrative says people were supposing that they were drunk, okay? They were staggering about with the Holy Spirit, okay? Listen carefully to what Peter says. But Peter, standing up with the 11, okay, lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this, what they are seeing, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days that saith, saith God, I will pour out, and he quotes Joel, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and on my servant and on my handmaids I will pour out my spirit in those days, that means in the last days of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapors of smoke and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great notable day of the Lord come and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter stands up and he says, you guys, these guys aren't drunk. He says, this is a fulfillment of what Joel said. And he quotes that very apocalyptic language, the heavens and the smoke and the blood. He says, it's being done right now. This is what you're seeing. It's, it's the last days coming forward here right now, Peter says. So you tell me, when did Peter believe the last days were? He believed, according to what he says, they were right then and there, at least the beginning of them. Now, if we jump to the first verse of the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews he explains when he believes the last days to be. You ready? You're familiar with these two verses. It says, God, who at different times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Okay, we use this when we talk to the LDS. Has in these last days, he says, spoken unto us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. So these last days, these last days, he says, are we talking almost 2,000 years ago, the writers of the New Testament narrative are telling their readers in their epistles to them, to those readers, they are calling those the last days. That's what they say, okay? I mean, we can't suggest it means anything otherwise unless we're being, I'm sorry, dishonest with ourselves, intellectually dishonest. I suppose we could say, well, they were writing by the Holy Spirit for us today. That passage is for us today. No, it wasn't. I mean, that's context. Context was it was to the Hebrew believers who had converted to Christianity, and that's how the writer opened it up. They were writing to actual people in actual places who were reading their words that were inspired for them at that time. And when they wrote, in these last days, the recipients of their words trusted 
that these writers knew what they were talking about by the Holy Spirit. Believe me, I've heard the futurists and the dispensationalists fumble around and try to explain passages like this. They say things like, you see, Sean, the last days started out way back yonder and continue to us today. You don't understand, Sean. They call them the last days there in Hebrew and over there in the, in, in the other passages. But those last days, they started then at the day of Pentecost, Sean. That's when they start and they're carrying forward now. We're still in the last days. The whole Old Testament economy, okay? Under the law of Moses lasted 1,500 years. That's the whole Old Testament. And we're supposed to believe that the last days spoken of by Peter and the writer of Hebrews is lasting 2,000 years now? I mean, come on, let's just be real. Let's just read what the, verse, uh, the verses say and say, yeah, that's what it meant. Instead of extrapolating, it's disingenuous, it's artificial, and it is as twisted as any form of Mormon twistianity that they do. And we don't call ourselves on it. We just think, no, well, we can excuse these twists that we make to make scripture make sense. And we accuse the Mormons of taking the scripture and twist it to their advantage, we are doing the same thing here when it comes to in times of Jesus, uh, when Jesus would return. There's absolutely no biblical support that suggests that the last days started in the New Testament and have extended out to our day and age today and have lasted this long. That's not what even the Greek words mean. Last, that means last, okay? It would be like saying Michael Jackson was born on August 29th, 1959, and on August 30th, 1959, he began the last days of his life. And he lived to be 50. That's what it would be like saying. That's really not true. The last days of his life were when he started to go downhill and died from his, his uh, lifestyle or whatever. So what last days does the Bible speak of? Who was the Bible written to? What was, it, what was being wrapped up in these last days that it talks about? What was ending once Jesus came and fulfilled all that was prophesied of him, what was ending that these writers are talking about these last days? Does the Bible anywhere say anything about the book being written so it could be applied to our generations way down later, 200, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years later? Nowhere. It doesn't say it. I believe if God wanted us to take those things and apply them to our age and our day, he would have included. And may all these things be applicable to every age, uh, ages on end, to come forever and ever until the ending of this world and advantage. Nothing. All it is is just a recitation of them and what, what Jesus and God were doing for them. Does the Bible anywhere say that? No. Extending the last days is one of the few options, one of the only options futurists have to explain their view as to why Jesus has not returned and, and that he's still coming just around the corner. So to claim that the apostles, when they wrote about the last days, had no idea what they were talking about, you can't do that or else we have to throw the New Testament away because then they weren't inspired. So you can't say that. And that position to me is even worse than the other ones. We are not living in the last days now, my friends, not from a biblical perspective, 
not from a collective perspective of the church. The Bible was written to the Jews and to the early converts, most of whom were Jews, and is a record of how Jesus' glorious good news sprang forth to the world and the wrapping up of all God did in dealing with them. That's what that record is. Again, nowhere does the text say it applies to us. In 1 John, the beloved apostle wrote this. Listen, little children, he's talking to believers. It is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists. This is what he's writing at that time. Whereby we know that it is the last time, he says. He doesn't even use day there. We've talked about the last days from Peter and the writer of Hebrews' perspective, and now John, who wrote last among all the writers of the epistles, John's writing last, he doesn't even use days in his description. He says it's the last time, and guess what? In the Greek, the word for time is the word for hour. He says it's the last hour. Do you understand that? Look it up yourself. He uses it twice. It's the last hour. He uses twice there in his epistle. When a generation gets to the last day of the last days, so we have the last days Peter and the writer of Hebrews talking about, and then we get to the last day of the last days, then we come to the last hours. And that's what John wrote about. He's saying it is so dang close, we're into the last hours of time. It's amazing. John was sitting there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, and he was one of the apostles who asked, Lord, when will these things be? What will be the sign of thy coming and the end of this age? The futurists say, because the King James translates age there to world, they think it means the end of the world. He's saying, when's gonna be the end of the age? And John, so many years later, decades later, saw everything Jesus had warned them about there on the Mount of Olives, and he knew the signs of the end of their age, and he was bold enough to put the phrase last days away and to use last hour. It's amazing. He was encouraging his little children to hang on that the end was imminent, that the end was more than near, it was at hand. Now, if these were the last days, even the last hour then, how could we still be in the last days now? How could we even possibly be in the last hour now? Just read the word. I have no vested interest to, to beguile anybody. You know, it only goes against us when we speak truth. But just read the scripture. I'm bringing it to you. Check it out yourself. We aren't in the last days, my friends, not physically. We are reading an actual book with actual history, actual application to them right then. And we have the benefit and privilege of having this book to learn the great spiritual lessons and they all, everything that happened to them physically applies to us spiritually. That is why the Bible is so influential and the, the greatest book on the face of this earth that we can trust to lead and guide us in our walk with Christ. And, and uh, in reading and studying these lessons, we would be fools not to see the application of all they experienced in their lives physically to see it apply to our lives spiritually. I mentioned this last week. Not one thing is lost spiritually on us in the lessons of the Bible. Therefore, we are, in a sense, in the last days. Let me explain. In the last hours, too, of our individual lives as we collectively read the word, how is that? Because we will be similarly judged, we will be similarly saved or destroyed, we will be similarly raptured, we will be similarly, similarly 
visited by Jesus as he, as the house of Israel was visited by him in 70 AD, so are we since that time, these thousand plus years, we have had our last days too. We are at the last hour of our lives. We don't know when God is gonna take us. And so spiritually, we live the life of a Christian, waiting for the time when we will have our second coming, when we will be taken up, when we will either be destroyed as, as the Jews were, or we will be saved as, they were, as the believers were. I mean, the spiritual application to our lives would take years to articulate up here, but it's high time we take a look at the idiocy of taking the contents of this book, especially when it comes to applying it to this day and age and trying to twist it all around to fit like we're still waiting for it. So what was actually ending in these last days and hours of the New Testament? What was passing away in the early church established by the Hebrew apostles? The age of Moses and the prophets was in its last days and was passing away. Making way for who? Making way for what? For Christ and the gospel of grace to go to the entire world. That little microcosm picture, wasn't so little, of the nation of Israel physically is now put out to the entire world uh, spiritually to all who will come to him. The age of the old covenant was in its last days and was passing away, making room for the new covenant, which is, which is described how in the Bible. This is how the new covenant, which replaced the old, which was in its last days, this is how the new covenant is described. Listen to it again. Hebrews chapter eight, verse six, of what the new covenant will look like. But now he has, Christ, has he obtained a more excellent ministry compared to the old that's vanishing away. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant compared to the old, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, say the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And remember, Paul said that anybody who is a follower of Christ is adopted as the house of Israel, is Abraham's children. So this is what he says. I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he said a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which is decaying and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That is what is vanishing. That is the heaven and the earth that is vanishing and is gonna be replaced by a new Jerusalem. That is what it means, if you've, if you've ever wondered. 
So the age of being in God's family by blood, by genealogy, by being Abraham's descendant was coming to an end. These were the last days of that. Now there is no difference between uh, Jew and Greek, between male and female, between bond and free. They were in the last days of all of that. And we are in a world of anyone coming into the family of God comes into it by grace. There's no difference between male and female. A female wants to preach the word, preach the word. The old way you couldn't because of the patriarchal order of things. Now they could, you want to focus on Jews and Israel? There's no difference between them and the, and the Greek in the world today in the last days of the new covenant. No difference. We have taken the book and we've applied it to our day and we keep making all these distinctions. We don't even know who Israel is. We don't even know who real Jews are. Do you know that? I am not anti-Semitic. I love the Jews, I, who we think are Jews. I love the culture. We don't know who they, who they are. We don't know who came from Levi and Kohath. We have no idea why. Their genealogies were completely destroyed by God through the Roman army in 70 AD. It vanished away, their whole economy, everything. So what's established as Israel today is a gathering of people we don't even know if they qualify for being Jews. There's a whole bunch of stuff in this. And we keep insisting that there's a difference between Jew and Gentile. None at all, at all, between anybody. Additionally, the age where natural Jerusalem being the place where people worshiped, remember that. Natural, physical Jerusalem was a place people worshiped. Remember Jesus said when he was sitting with the woman at the well, he said, the day is coming, he said, and now is when true believers, true believers, neither worship in this mountain, Samaria, he said to her, nor in Jerusalem. Do you know, remember when he said that to her? He said, the day's coming. In fact, he says it now is. When men who worship him and women in spirit and in truth, they're not gonna worship here in Samaria in this false temple, nor are they gonna worship in Jerusalem in the physical, real temple place. That's gonna be done. It's gonna happen from the heart. Futurists, dispensationalists take all sorts of liberties in explaining how since Christ and the end of that age and the destruction of Israel is all still viable. It's just not so, it's done, no difference. Now, again, as Jesus said, the Father now seeks not people worshiping him from Jerusalem, not worshiping him from the phony Samaria, uh, and not worshiping him as a man or a woman or a Greek or a Jew or a bond or a free, but worshiping him in spirit and in truth from wherever they are. Then to hear this, Latter-day Saints especially, the last days of the Levitical priesthood were coming to an end. It was over and done. The genealogies of the Jews were about to be wiped out and destroyed. God is about to establish with Jesus as his high priest, a royal priesthood. Guess what, who's part of that? Men, women, Children, no one qualifies by virtue of lineage or blood or genealogy. Everybody's part of the royal priesthood. So the woman in the LDS church who's down there saying, we want the priesthood? You have it, sister. As a believer in Christ, you have it. You don't need any men organizing some kind of false priesthood here, which was destroyed. It's, it's simple. The law of Moses, harsh and condemnatory ending in its last days, replaced by grace and truth and love of Jesus Christ. And so finally, it's taken me some time. We come to the words Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words to you apostles about all this shall not pass away. Stay with me on this point. You're gonna have your minds blown. You ready? The old physical Jerusalem was in the last days and would soon be gone. In its place, a new Jerusalem, a new spiritual city, which is above, 
which is the mother of all of us, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem was about to come, okay? Ever wonder what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 4, 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Do you notice Paul doesn't talk about the physical one anymore? He says Jerusalem is above. <laughs> Forget about this other. This is not the physical Jerusalem restored. It's all spiritual now. We have no idea, as I said, who the real Jews are, and it doesn't matter because they're neither Jew or Greek in Christ. Where is the new Jerusalem? Listen to Hebrews 12, 22. You ready? Paul writes, or the writer says, but you are come unto the Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Nothing to do with physical restoration or repatriatization or Zionism or any of that. Christ did something better, gave something better, established something better, and was no longer tied to the physical people or that nation. Speaking to Jewish converts of Christianity, the writer of Hebrews said, for here we have no, here on this earth, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Here, there, we don't have a city that we're flocking to. There's no continuing city we look for. It's done. We look for one to come. That's the, uh, Jerusalem on high. So when Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, within that generation, by the way, he was not speaking of literal heaven and literal earth as zealous, unthinking, literal futurists love to imply, but he was speaking of everything related to that world, everything related to it of that age. They were in the last days of it and their heaven and their earth was, it may go away, but his words would not go away. He was preparing for a new heaven and a new earth. And um, where righteousness dwells and not people groups and others. So let me wrap this message up. Just put this one last nail in the new heaven and new earth mess. This passage is really important. In Isaiah, it says, speaking of the nation of Israel. Now read this with me carefully. But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have, past tense, Put my words in thy mouth, Israel is what he's talking about. And I have, past tense, covered thee in the shadow of my hand, that I may, okay, this is future tense, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, thou art my people. Do you know what that says? Do you know what he's saying there? I'm showing this to show you the way the Hebrews write and think. This is what God says to them. God is saying that he brought Israel through the Red Sea. He brought them to Zion, uh, Mount Sinai and he gave them his words. And by doing all that, he was then going to go on from that point And he says that I may now, so to speak, plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. Well, we know that the heavens and the foundations of the earth literally were already planted and laid. So what's he talking about there? We know that he, this language is figurative about him planting a heaven and laying the foundation of an earth centered around the nation of Israel that he had carved out. 
This is the new heaven and earth for them that he was going to plant. Now that he has put his words in their mouth, now that he parted the Red Sea for them, now he's gonna plant a new, uh, he's gonna plant a heaven and an earth for them. That's how it's described. You got that? So that calling of the nation of Israel out for his purposes uh, is figuratively or spiritually planted. He plants a new heaven and an earth based on them then. So when Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, it's the heaven and earth that God is describing there in Israel, uh, in Isaiah. It's the heaven and earth where he is saying, look it, all of that is gonna go too. That heaven and that earth is gone. That whole economy is gone. And you can see it clearly through that passage. That's what it is. So remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.31. He said, the fashion of this world passes away. He's not talking about, you know, people buying cars and, and, and things. He's talking about the fashion of the old covenant, that heaven and earth that God created under their whole economy passing away. John says something similar in 1 John 2.17. And the world passes away and the lust thereof the lust that comes by the law, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Both Paul and John were speaking of the world of the Jews passing away and it was happening. It's not the natural world that's being spoken of in this language. It was the heavens and earth created when God called the nation of Israel and established them under the heaven and earth he built for them. Again, in the place of the former system of law and condemnation and religion and ordinances, the objective rights and demands, it was, there was a far more glorious way coming. God would write now his law upon the hearts and minds of the people, and, and it would be a subjective relationship that people, individuals have with him, not nations, not churches, not brick and mortar institutions, individuals where the word of God would go out and reach them. Speaking of the last days of the former system being replaced by latter days of subjective relationship, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.11, for if that which is done away was glorious, talking about the old covenant, much more that which remains is glorious. He's already admitting there's gonna be something that remains, you know? And what's passing away to him right then, that old economy, when Jesus culminated, when Jesus comes in 70 AD, he says the thing that's gonna remain is far more glorious. That's his point. John put it this way, describing what it would look like in 1 John 2, 8. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. Way back to the former system, then it was utterly getting ready to decay. The darkness was fleeing, the light was beginning to shine. The new has no vestiges of the old, none. The new is spiritual, it's heavenly, it's based in grace, it's not in law, it's based in faith, it's followed by love, it's centered in heaven, it's a city, the new Jerusalem that resides in heaven. Church and church playing and using the New Testament as a new law in the church to beat each other up with was never ever in the plan and, and true believers and true seekers see it. They get that. That's why they don't have anything to do with the game. He writes his laws upon our hearts and minds and no man needs to teach his neighbor anything. We believers will all know him by his spirit. Only when the churches begin to see themselves in this light will we then begin to truly let the light shine, begin to get rid of the dark vestiges and religion will die. And what is being described here as this glorious new way will begin to truly take hold. 
I think it's been greatly debilitated and, and handicapped, if I can use that word, by men who have taken the word and they've, and they've used it. So I wanna end really quick. We'll open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We'll get to Cindy and Orem, Utah in just a second. But let me just read this, begin at Hebrews 8, 8, where it says, the writer says plainly, of the former Jerusalem, of the former law, of the former covenants, religion demands, for finding fault with them. He said, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in that covenant. And I regarded them not, said the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. And may all believers listen to this. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Those by the way, unrighteousness, sins and iniquities are all in the present tense. Meaning if they sin, they're forgiven. I've forgiven them through the blood of my son. In the last verse he says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxes old is ready to vanish away. All right, we have a question here before we go to Cindy. What about the thousand years millennial reign if Jesus came in 70 AD, when is the millennium going to happen? We're gonna get to that question. And you know what this is like, and I, and I really am not talking down to anybody because I get this. I used to ask the same questions. This is like when we used to do shows to the LDS, for instance, on the Book of Mormon. And I would give three weeks of the greatest evidence to show plagiarism, to show that the guy had help with it, to show all kinds of anachronisms and all this other stuff. And then we'd get a caller say, well, how did Joseph write the Book of Mormon? And you've just spent a ton of time showing. And the reason is mindset. The LDS had the mindset from growing up, nobody could write that book. So no matter what evidence you're giving, they always go back and say, so how did he write it? And, and, and that's what happens with subjects like this in Christianity. We go back to the same thing. I got an email right here from a guy named Dave. And, and Dave says, uh, you know, when Jesus returns with his angels, has that happened yet? All the Jews will mourn as a son. Well, that, has that happened? The gospel must be preached to all nations, Sean. That hasn't happened yet. We've explained that. And it's not the gospel will be preached to all nations. In the Greek, the gospel will be preached to all uh, ethnos, all ethnicities in that area. That's completely easily understood. But see, this is the process you go through when you bring something new to the camp. People who don't wanna hear it freak out, they hate you. And people who do wanna hear it can't understand it. So we just keep going. We will cover the thousand years when we get back. Cindy and Orem, Utah line two. Cindy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hi, Cindy. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, I'll just make this super quick. I'm LDS. Um, I've been in the church since my whole life. I'm 52. And um, I just recently started watching your show and ex-Mormon files and reading things. And I'm, like, kind of blown away. I mean, I went on a mission, you know, temple, the whole thing. And I'm, I'm freaking out yeah. <laughs> a little bit about everything I'm hearing. So I'm kind of starting to think, okay, if the Book of Mormon's not true, and none, none of it's true, yeah. then is the Bible true? Because now I'm looking into the Bible, and it's saying, stuff like, you know, the dinosaurs, uh, how would that fit in? How would Noah's flood? You know, all this stuff. So I'm completely 
blown away and confused. At 52 years old, I don't even know what I believe. I know. Cindy, uh, first of all, my heart goes out to you like you can't believe, as does the heart of people in our audience and people who have been former LDS. What you're going through is, is very, very normal. And your questioning and your doubting is a very normal process of coming to understand that what you've been fed your whole life and what you've taught on your mission and everything else has not been the truth. And it's really hard to, and, and, but you're a seeker of truth and God, God will guide you. So let me give you just some little bit of advice, okay? Okay. All right, first and foremost, my sister, uh, whether, uh, you may have already done this, but go to God and just say, I am laying my soul out to you. I want truth. I, I need you to guide me in my life and in my help because I can't do it. Because in our flesh, we, will, we get so mixed up, Cindy, and we make so many mistakes and it is so difficult on us that many people just go back and say, I can't handle it. And they, and they, they become atheists or they become Mormon again and don't believe it, but they just stay in because it's the club and all those things. But so the first thing would be go to him. Second thing would be to, to really relax, really trust him. You may go through a period where you're going to become bitter or angry. You may, you may question God's existence. You will certainly question the Bible. These are all normal things all LDS go through because you are taught they're the only true church and you put your faith and trust in, a, in things that you're finding are not true. So how can you ever trust anything else? And so my, our heart goes out to you. Third, stay on the line. We wanna send you some books that may help. I'm gonna give you a, a, also when you hang up a list of books that I recommend for people who are coming out. And then we'll give you, put you in contact, if you will, with your name, with uh, some other people who have come out, like Bishop Earl. You enjoy his show on X-Files. He and his wife, Carla, would love to talk with you and, and, and hear about what's going on and help answer some of the questions that come out. Uh, Earl's really good at that. And so those, those things are right there on the tip of my tongue to, to give you some advice. Okay, I, I appreciate it. I'm just blown away by everything. And I'm just thinking, well, if the Book of Mormon's not true, what about the Bible? Because there's so many discrepancies there as well. So it's like, you know, they're saying the flood never happened. I mean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not saying the flood never happened. I'm saying it's geographical rather than worldwide. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, we have a lot of stuff we've been fed by men who are zealous for God. And so they, they perpetrate some things that aren't necessarily, in my opinion, correct. And it hurts us in the end. It doesn't help us. Well, every major decision I made in my life was based on the church. Every major decision, who I married, whether I went on a mission, what I did with my whole life was all based on the church. It's hard, huh? It's, it's tough. Do you have children? Yeah, I have three. Mm -hmm. how, I taught them this their whole life. And how's your relationship with your husband? Does he know about this? Well, I actually divorced him years ago, about eight, nine years ago, because he wasn't believing in the church. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Yeah. Maybe you'll get back together. <laughs> uh, no. No. <laughs> He's Forget that last little. <laughs> hey, listen, <laughs> if you can ever make it up, you know, I know you're, you're in Orem. If you can ever make it up to campus, come visit us some Sunday. Uh, where you go to campus online with dots, hyphens in between. Uh, you keep watching the show. Stay well, on the line. We'll get you some of these books. And then maybe if you can contact uh, Earl, I don't think he would mind at all. Uh, we'll go from there. Sure, thank you, appreciate it. All right, my sister, hold on. Never know where hold is. All right, we have a caller that's being vetted. Sean, you did a terrible last week with my question. 
Refer back to John 3.16. What locations are mentioned in this verse? Hint, on earth as it is in heaven. One of three points from a viewer. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I did a terrible job answering your question of what locations did this occur? I would suggest you're doing a terrible job asking your question. <laughs> and I'm gonna leave it at that. Okay, listen, uh, some emails from Braden. If Christianity is totally subjective, why do you teach? Why do you teach the Bible every week? Hey, this is a great question. What the heck am I doing? Why am I, if it's, you know, he writes it on our hearts, you know, let's just go off and just, you know, hey, tune into God under the pines, right? No. All pastor teachers are gonna differ on, on issues in teaching the Bible. That's understood. We are all going to differ. Uh, the subjectivity of Christianity falls on the shoulders of the hearer of the word. That's my point. Pastors, wherever you go, are going to teach different views, depending on their understanding and how the Spirit has moved them to understand and if they're blocked by that or if they're faulty, as I am. So we're gonna make mistakes. The question is, do we give the liberty as pastors of the hearer to decide what they wanna believe based on the Holy Spirit, based on their study of scripture? Or do we say as pastors, this is it, you have to believe it in order to be considered a Christian. So subjectivity in Christianity is upon, the onus is upon the hearer of the word, not the deliverer. The deliverer does their best job. I don't know many pastors who are going to purposely try to lie and, 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 and uh, mislead people, but so it's up to you. That's where the subjectivity comes. No pastor has everything right. So the hearer is obviously in the position to decide for themselves what they're going to believe. And, and we lie to ourselves as pastors if we think that our congregants, they're all gonna be like, okay, that I believe, that I believe, that. You know, that's not happening anyway. It's all subjective anyway. So let's open that up a little bit and say, look, you know, this is how I see it. Other people see it a different way and stop being so dogmatic. Pastors do their best to convey biblical truths, but I'm suggesting that every believer allow themselves and each other, the people you're sitting next to, to differ. We are not saved by doctrine. We're not. I used to believe doctrine was imperative. And that's why Heart of the Matter was so full of zest and, and vigor because that's not the doctrine. I don't believe that anymore. I believe we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And those who know him, irrespective of the foolish doctrines we entertain, know him and they're his. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's apologists out there who make their life and living off apologetical points of doctrine and they assassinate and, and go after everybody they can who differ. I'm done with those days. Done. Completely. Done. I think they're horrible days and they're a horrible way to live. And my heart is softened by God who has been showing me you are a fool, but it was part of the process. So I get us when, when you meet somebody who's really staunch in their doctrine, I love them because I've been there too, but it's not the end of the game. The end of the game is Christ Jesus, and if the Spirit has testified to us in his heart. We also teach the Bible to help people grow in faith. It's by the hearing of the word, errant as many of our teachings are, that people grow in their faith. So we continue to want people to grow in faith, subjective as their relationship to God is. They wanna grow in faith to him, so we teach the word. Bottom line, subject to Christianity is a means to help hopefully kill dogmatic fights, to help open up the, the, the realm of discussion, 
to let pastors teach freely, to let congregates accept freely, and then grow in this relationship where God has written his laws upon our hearts and minds. That's how I see a, a, a much better answer to this thing than denominationalism and sectarianism and infighting and assassinating everybody's character because one person thinks Jesus' hair was blonde and the other one thinks it was uh, brown. You know, it's just insane. Harold J. writes, what are some of the best books to understand Mormonism? Cindy, this is to you too. If a person has not ever been LDS, it's tough, but here, here are some books. We'll do quickly and we've got some calls. Um, Insider's View of Mormon Origin is a favorite. Grant Palmer, fantastic book. Exiles in the Land of Liberty by Wynn. One of the best books, in my opinion, on uh, uh, Mormonism and the development of it and, the, and uh, the Book of Mormon. Also, Pursue It is the last name. Do you know the title, uh, uh, Reed? There's a, Reed turned me on to a guy named Pursue It. I read his book, excellent, on the forming of the Book of Mormon. Origins of Power, uh, Mormonism and the Magic Worldview, D. Michael Quinn, The Making of a Prophet, Dan Vogel, and a little favorite quirky book I really love is Sword of Laban, Joseph Smith and the Dissociative Mind. It's by a guy named uh, Dr. William Moran. It's a fascinating read. Those books we really recommend. Uh, one thing before we go to Robert, Jason, and Douglas in Boston, uh, don't send me something to add on to LinkedIn. I don't know what the hell that is. I don't wanna be LinkedIn. Don't send me anything that tweets. Don't send me anything that Instagrams, spams. Send me nothing on Facebook. I'm not interested at all. I am absolutely not interested in S&M, sadomasochism, excuse me, social media. Not interested. So please don't put me in your LinkedIn things. I don't like it. I don't want it. All right. Uh, quiet, Wendy and, and, and Linda Cassidy and Danita. We are going to Douglas in Boston, Massachusetts. Douglas, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you doing? Hey, doing well. How are you? Good. So um, if I want to get saved right now, what do I have to do? To get saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, um, and that's it? Well, I would say yeah. But what does the Bible say? Uh, it says that. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it says, and confess him with your mouth you will be saved. That's Romans 10. Can't okay, add to it. Can I uh, go to hell after I believe? I do believe you can. Huh? Yes, I do believe you can. I believe saved does not refer to hell. I believe saved refers to the lake of fire. Okay, um, didn't you say um, once, once you believe, you have eternal life? Uh, I have said that no man can take you out of God's hand. That's what scripture says. But I do believe there is plenty of support to suggest that we can walk from his free gift. Right, but um, eternal life, that's what he promised us, right? Eternal life? Yep. But when do you receive eternal life? Uh, I believe when it's all said and done and you oh. enter into God's realm, that is receiving eternal life, not before. Okay, I believe you have it as soon as you believe it. Yeah, I believe that too, but I don't think the job's done. And I think you still have the opportunity to walk away. Uh. I know, it's really disturbing in this day and age of say it, you're saved, don't worry about it, go on. And, uh, and I believe that scripture, we should really do a show on this, sh several shows, proves that Jesus taught and the apostles taught, don't be fooled. Uh, that's why they were constantly warning of apostasy. 
That's not where they're constantly warning their believers to hang on. Why? If once saved, always saved, they would say, don't worry about it. But they don't say that. Never. That's a okay, how about the, um, the, the rapture? I believe that it's going to be a post, I'm a post-trip. It's yeah. after the tribulation, like Matthew 24 says, Mark 13, Luke 21. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I believe the, 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 the rapture occurs when you die. When you die? Like, like who? What do you mean? Like when you physically take your last breath, you are either raptured and taken up, or you are thrown down. Well, how about the whole uh, Antichrist thing? What about that? Uh, I think that was uh, fulfilled in the days of Nero and the successors, and I think we've covered that in the shows prior. Oh, so you think like he, it's, it's been done, like he's, yeah. he, he was here and then he's gone? Yeah, I think he came back in 70 AD, as did the apostles and as did, as did Jesus. Oh, I see. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, thank you very much. Okay, thanks for watching, Douglas. See you later. Let's go to Jason in Eagle, Idaho. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, I had a question. First of all, I love what's going on here and the, and the discussion and the, and the ideas and the seeking the truth. It's, it's something I love, and I was talking to a friend of mine. And uh, it's a question I had, too, and I noticed someone else had asked a question about the millennial reign of Christ and about how Isaiah... Uh, 11 8 um, uh, they're about this step away from my computer but uh, basically it says that the, that the lion shall lie down with the lamb and the, the baby should play with the ass and they won't be hurt and uh, it, it, is this a case of more flowery language that uh, the Jews actually used or or was this referring to something that we maybe miss yeah I, you know I believe it was language used by the Jews and I I believe that it's uh, could depict Two things. It could have depict, depicted what God would do for the Jews had they received the promised Messiah, but they didn't, and so that was done. Or it could depict what life is like in the New Jerusalem, in the heavenly places. Or it could just be that flowery language describing something that, that uh, is fulfilled spiritually. All of those are my viable options to that kind of uh, talk. Uh, and I don't take those passages uh, literally, and I know that's a dangerous game to pick and choose, but you almost have to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, every, every time I, I mention, you know, it's so funny. It's just like you said, you know, you, you try to you try to talk to somebody about something that's not in the Bible, like the word Trinity, and uh, they're ready to to nail you to a board, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel the same thing. I've and been nailed I, with I, you. I want you to know that. Uh, there's people out here that just love your uh, desire to, to get the truth, and, and we love what you're doing, and we love you, brother, and, and you're doing a great job, and keep up the good work, and, and God bless you in your ministry. Thanks, my brother, Jason. Thanks so much. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's really nice to get encouraging words because, uh, you know, uh, we wanted Robert. Tell Robert to call next week. He'll be the first caller we will take, please, Wendy. Tell him that. Uh, got this, recently watched a recording of the Inquisition. I remain uncertain of your position on God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Jason brought up the, uh, the term Trinity and how they're ready to nail you to the board. Well, uh, I believe there is one God. I believe that uh, when we think of the Father, when we think of the Son, when we think of the Holy Spirit, that is God. If the scripture's speaking of the Son, it's God in the flesh. If the scripture's speaking of Spirit, it is God with us in spirit. Scripture speaking of, uh, uh, of the Father, it's God. 
And uh, I think he's self-existent. I think all of his manifestations, he is God. And uh, so I have no problem with people who are Trinitarians who break that down. If they wanna believe that Jesus was a person and the Holy Spirit was a person, a being separate and distinct, except uh, uh, from, the, from each other, but one, they can. I respect them, I love them. They're probably better Christians than I'll ever be and will enter the kingdom and eternal life far ahead of me. I just do not believe scripture supports eternal sonship and I do not believe scripture supports that the Holy Spirit is a spirit being separate from the Father and separate from the Son. I believe the Holy Spirit is God's spirit. So Trinitarians roll over in their grave on that and that's okay. You know, they don't like it, fine. I, I, don't, want a non, I don't want a non-biblical term to dictate to me who God is. I read the scripture. I believe in him like you do. I trust in Christ like you do. I look for the Holy Spirit to be in my life like you do. That's the best I can do. And hopefully that will help those who have also had problems with that term Trinity. We're out of time. Uh, we'll come back next week and cover more about end times. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the 